just like you, I've always been curious about successful people. In season two, we'll delve further to explore passion, purpose, and peace with today's heroes. Join me as we chat with inspiring and accomplished women and men who will share their journeys and life hacks to pass the power on to you. Hey guys, as always, thank you for listening. I am delighted to return with another exciting episode of Pass the Power with me, Paige Parker. Here to share today is the inspiring Chatri Sichuton, a self-made entrepreneur and lifelong martial artist from Thailand. He is the founder, chairman, and CEO of One Championship, Asia's largest global sports media property. He's the star of the Asian edition of The Apprentice, and spoiler alert, he may pick a kick-ass woman as the winner. You need to watch. He's an entrepreneur in residence at INSEAD and was inducted into the Black Belt Hall of Fame in 2019. A crew in Muay Thai and a purple belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Chatri holds an MBA from Harvard and a BA from Tufts University. Welcome, my new friend. I'm so happy to finally have you here to pass the power. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Paige. I really appreciate it again. But before we dive deep, I want to let the listeners know that recently I attended one of your events to experience one championship. And it was so energetic. It was five hours long. You definitely get your money's worth. And even with the restrictions due to the pandemic, you continue to give the attendees in the stadium, as well as the viewers on television, a night to remember. And I feel like we all need and appreciate that right now. So thank you. No, thank you so much, Paige, for uh, you know experiencing one. I always tell my team that it's kind of left hand and right hand in that we are creating magical memories for friends and families all over the world in their living rooms and of, of course in the stadium as well with our heroes. But what people don't see on the right hand is our mission, or I hope they see it rather, feel it and, and, and think about it. Our mission since day one has been to unleash real life superheroes who ignite the world with hope, strength, dreams, and inspiration. And yes, you see this beautiful martial artist action, you know, of the greatest world champions on the planet, but we also tell their stories and we want you to relate to those stories. Like we have our flyweight world champion, Adriano Moraes. He was an orphan. I believe he was adopted when he was three years old around there comes from uh, you know, African-Brazilian descent in Brazil, and his mother comes from a Caucasian descent, and he credits his mom for everything in life, and it is true, you know? At the same time, you look at his whole life of adversity, tragedy, poverty, I mean, just incredible odds for him to become a world champion, and yet he's humble, he's kind, he's gracious, he truly has a heart of gold. And ultimately, you know, one now has a huge voice in the world. We do about 30 billion organic video views online now. And we're broadcast every week in 154 countries. My team and I always talk about how do we want to shape the world because our heroes through their words and actions genuinely shape culture, daily life, society. It impacts how little boys treat little girls, how children treat their parents, their grandparents, what society deems acceptable or not acceptable. When we made Angela Lee one of the highest paid athletes, you know, I got a lot of hate mail across Asia because there is gender inequality that exists in many parts of Asia. And for me, I wanted to make a statement that it didn't matter if you're male or female. If you're the best in the world, you deserve to be paid the best in the world. And so, you know, we've had so many interesting opportunities like that to help shape this next generation and the future generations to come. So thank you so much, Paige, for attending and experiencing the live experience. But I hope you took away also our values, our heroes, and our stories. Well, honestly, it was hard for me because I did the research and I knew your vision. And I was having a hard time intellectually having that coexist with fighting in the ring. But I think once you're there and you see that the young people really working to improve their craft and to win a world title and the core values that you impart with all of them, you get a sense of that at the physical event. Yes, and, and, so, and you also see how they interact with each other after. Yes, we had some heated moments, but generally speaking, after you lay it all down on the line and whoever wins, wins, you see a lot of humility and grace and honor and respect, which mm -hmm. is the martial arts culture. And these are the things that I want people to take away as well, right? Is the inherent values of martial arts. You know, Asia's been the home of martial arts for 5,000 years. And it's something that I want everyone to celebrate as a lifelong martial artist myself. Well, I did notice some high fives and like some bumps with the fist after they tried to kind of kill each other. Then they, they were <laughs> like there celebrating yes. what had happened. But you talked about Victoria Lee. She's a 17-year-old fighter and her siblings, Angela and Christian, are part of a family that kind of represent purpose and passion and immense MMA talent. And I saw both Victoria and Christian fight. Christian was defeated in his world title bout and Victoria won. 
both credit their father with their success. I feel like we're in a moment where tiger parents get a bad rap. What do you think? Is it the father that helped this family of MMA fighters become so extraordinary? Because that's where they get the credit. Definitely the Lee family is a very special family. And the first time I met them, I could feel the incredible love they have for each other. I could feel the closeness. I could feel the values that they exemplified as human beings. And Ken and Jules are both black belt martial artists, lifelong martial artists. Actually, they were also, I believe, part of the Canadian national taekwondo team. Yeah, Ken and Jules are the parents of Angela, Christian, Victoria, and Adrian. All martial arts runs very deep in the family. Again, the both parents are black belts, lifelong martial artists. And when I look at Ken and Jules and how they raise their kids, and I've spent a lot of time talking to them because their kids are such incredible people, humble and kind and, and yet fierce and intelligent and just really good people with hearts of gold. And I would say that there's a yin and yang. You know, Ken is the more vocal one and he's definitely their head coach. But I would say Jules is a silent one, but has a quiet strength about her. And I think the kids have learned both sides from Ken and Jules, from their parents. And definitely, you know, Angela and all of her siblings started martial arts at three years old because both her parents, again, at the time they had a martial arts school and they were, that's their living. You know, it's debatable on how hard they were pushed. I do know they're very pushed very hard during training camp ahead of a fight. Uh, but I also know they pushed themselves. And uh, I remember clearly when I saw Angela training one time and getting beaten up and she was sobbing and crying while she's getting beaten up. And I said, Angela, why don't you just take a break? I said, just, you know, have a seat, take a break. And she said, no, sir, no, sir. And that moment really taught me that Angela is in it for herself because, you know, when you're getting beaten up in training and you really don't want to be there and it's because your parents forced you <laughs> you will break. And somebody gives you an option to yeah, get out. Yeah, exactly. And many times, I said several times that day, I'm like, Angela, you can sit out. And she would cry, cry with tears. And she, at that time, she was like 18 years old and just cry and cry. And she would say, no, sir. And so this is something obviously, you know, Ken and Jules and I have discussed about their kids. It's like, I said, Ken, whatever happens, I want to make sure that they want it because Victoria signed with one when she was 16 years old. And I had this long conversation with, Ken, her father, as well as Victoria, like, do you really want it or is it coming from extrinsic forces? And back to your original question, Paige, about being a tiger parent, I think there are many ways to unlock a child's potential. And I think there has to be carrot and stick. Sometimes it's carrot, sometimes it's stick. Sometimes good things are not necessarily good and bad things are not necessarily bad. And what I mean about this is your child might cry because they're getting disciplined. But is that a bad thing or a good thing? They cry for that moment, but if they learn the lesson for the long term, it's actually a good thing. So it depends on what you see. And so it's very hard, but I think there's nobody in this world that is truly fulfilled, content, and happy unless he or she has unleashed his or her greatness, fulfilled his or her potential. And with that, you need, at times, external catalysts, and parents can be that. Well, I always say we need to tiger parent on what our children excel in. I find here, parents often tiger parent on everything. And a child is not going to be the smartest, fastest, best swimmer, top in the class. And if your child is academic, you push. Managing expectations is important, but we can't push them on everything. That's a very interesting, I agree with you in that too many parents want their child to be perfect at everything. And I think that creates emotional trauma that reveals itself later in life. When I grew up, my father or my mother actually never gave me, probably to my detriment, any negative pressure. They disciplined me hard. They physically punished me in an Asian way with a cane or a belt. But in looking back in hindsight, it was good discipline for me. <laughs> well, in order to prep for our time together, because we've been talking about doing this podcast for probably nine months, I've read your LinkedIn post, your Facebook, I've listened to you on podcasts, and I really feel that you are genuinely cut from a different cloth from most people because... I am absurdly optimistic, but you definitely out-optimist me. And I also know that as a teen, you faced poverty and abandonment when your father left, when he faced bankruptcy, but you went on to create success that most people only dream of. So was it that low in life that made you the very empathetic champion that you are now lifting up others? So it's funny, Paige, I don't feel like I'm cut from a different cloth per se versus everybody else. I do feel that everyone has a path and everyone 
has greatness in them. It's up to the individual to find and discover what it is that ignites his or her soul and have the guts and courage to pursue it. And I think society sometimes robs people of this courage because you're put into a box. But when I look back on my life, you know, it's as strange and as crazy as it sounds, like I'm truly grateful for my days of struggle, my days in poverty. And I know it sounds crazy, but I'm very thankful for my father for abandoning the family. And I remember at his funeral a few years ago, and after we cremated him, I went back and sat and reflected on everything my father and I, and I told him, thank you. Thank you for teaching me all the lessons that I needed to be taught. And one of them was by him abandoning the family, it made me a lot tougher as a person, gave me fire in my belly, gave me a lot of compassion for later in life that I, the struggles that I went through. And I don't know if I would have learned and inherited all those precious lessons if I didn't go through such adversity. You know, watching your mother cry hopelessly because she was a homemaker who had never had a job and had no idea how to have a job and was worried sick about her kids. And, you know, we were eating one meal a day at the time. And it was very painful going through it. But today I'm honestly truly grateful. And, you know, a lot of times you have to see things that you don't want in your life or people you don't want to become in order to truly solidify who you will become or who you, you aspire to be. And my father was far from perfect as a man, but I'm still grateful to the good, bad and ugly that I experienced with him. Before we proceed, let's take a quick break. Well, you were talking about sometimes needing to have a space to know that's not what you want. And I know that you had $500 million hedge fund and you walked away. And did the time at the hedge fund cause you to have the passion and purpose over profit mindset? Or was it when you walked away, you were able to do that? You know, when I was uh, dirt poor, living on $4 a day with my mother living in the dorm room with me, uh, and I was living on the floor in a small little single dorm room in Morris Hall at Harvard, I thought naively that money would bring happiness because I could solve all my problems for my mother, for myself. And so I just naively latched onto that belief that money creates happiness. And I went to Silicon Valley, did a startup, sold it. Where else can you make a lot of money? Wall Street, learned the craft of being a hedge fund manager, then struck out on my own. And I remember I had a record year, made more money than I could have ever imagined. And I went down to the sushi restaurant nearby for lunch by myself. And I was just sitting there reflecting, really happy about everything, excited. And then I started thinking about I don't know, just this this sudden cold sweat, you know, swept over me and like, you can buy more houses, more cars, but what's the point? I mean, you can add more zeros to your hedge fund, but what's the point? And I started thinking more and more about everything. And I, and I realized like, I don't really even care how many houses or cars I have. I actually, a pretty simple guy at heart. And I don't know, I think I naively bought into social status, material things, and I'm not saying that those things are wrong, you know, to each his own or her own. But I think the power of a person really comes from when they listen to their heart, when they really deeply reflect about what it is that ignites their soul, then they become limitless. I think you can achieve success to a certain point by listening to what society wants, what social status is, what material things. And yes, you can buy houses and cars through that. But will you ever truly be fulfilled when you're alone? content when you're alone. And these are the things I struggled with when I was a hedge fund manager. And there's nothing wrong with being a hedge fund manager. I mean, there's plenty of people who, you know, making money in the stock market truly ignites their souls. But for me, I knew I was kind of living a facade. I have a very conservative Japanese mother who's very proud of me wearing a suit and necktie every day to work, working on Wall Street. She loved saying my son is a Harvard MBA and he, he works on Wall Street. I've heard you talk about yes. how she slept on the floor in your dorm yeah. room. Yeah, I slept on the floor, she slept on the bed. Okay, I, I think that wasn't legal. Yeah. Did you ask permission or you just did it? No, no, we just did it. <laughs> like, like, yeah, no, I, I think, you know, I was very scared because I was afraid I was going to get expelled from Harvard. Mm -hmm. You know, we had a key card that you could swipe um, getting in the dorm and mom would time it and so that we could go in and out. But yeah, um, it was a tiny little single room in Morris Hall, one of the dorms, and I slept on the floor and mom slept on the single bed, unbeknownst to anybody. Maybe one or two friends knew, but other than that, I was, you know, very, very 
careful. You say that you were not the best student. So how did you end up at Harvard? Yeah, I mean, I mean, genuinely growing up, you know, as a child and elementary, middle and high school, I was bottom one third for sure. No offense, but I was sent to the principal's office more times than I can remember. My mom had to visit the principal, you know, for fighting, for pranks, for everything. And uh, in university, I did okay in the first year. Not great. And this is what I mean about grateful for my father. I remember coming back and I think I had like a 2.7 GPA my freshman year in university, something like that. And, and I came back. Out of a 4.0. Out of a 4.0. So it was nothing to uh, be proud of. And, and I was home for summer break. And my father, who never spoke to me ever, like he's just one of these typical Asian fathers, very intimidating man. And I remember at breakfast and he was there reading the newspapers and had a cup of coffee. And I came and I sat down to have my breakfast. And we don't really have a talk. And suddenly he says, what do you want to do with your life? And I was shocked because he never asked me. And I said, oh, dad, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a businessman. I don't know. How old were you? This was after freshman year. So I was like 18, right? Okay. Yeah. And said, you think you can be a doctor? Ha ha ha. And he laughed. And then he scoffed at me. And then he he just, you know, looked at the newspaper. And that was it. That was the end of our conversation. But that somehow, that embarrassing moment lit a fire in me. And then I just started I don't know. And then, of course, then my father went bankrupt and all that stuff. But I'm grateful for all these lessons. That's what I mean. And that literally was probably the most important conversation my father ever had with me. And it was two minutes long. But fortunately, it fed your soul. It empowered you to do. For so many kids, it doesn't. It debilitates them. Right, right. right? Yeah, and that's what I mean. You know, as any leader or, or if you're a parent, you have to know how to inspire your and some people genuinely get inspired by a stick and some people get inspired <laughs> by a carrot, right? So it depends. But the fact that he never spoke to me ever, and then suddenly we had this two-minute conversation, and I felt this deep embarrassment about myself. And I don't know, it just triggered something in me that made me a better student at university. So by the end, I was a pretty good student, you know, but still, I, I never thought I was going to get into Harvard. I definitely never thought in a million years. I applied because my mother, the Japanese conservative lady, that's the image of what she wanted of her son. And at the time also, we had no other options. I mean, by that time, I were poor. But then... It became about, Chachi, the life, your life plan is to go to the best school possible, then get a, a safe corporate job, and then we'll be fine. So, yeah, things went from 180 degrees from me being a little bit of a spoiled brat to suddenly me having to take care of my mom and my younger brother and, their, and, and the future of the family. Tell me this, please. I know at Harvard, you've talked about how you felt imposter syndrome. And even Michelle Obama in her book, Becoming, talks about how she felt it. And I think if Michelle Obama has it, I mean, everybody out there listening is suffering from it or has suffered from it. How did you fight those insecurities at Harvard? And for those young people listening who feel inferior, what's your guidance? So definitely, you know, when I got in, I was shocked. And I remember telling my mom, I'm not going. And I was making a million excuses why I'm not going. And the real reason was because I thought that I wasn't smart enough, that I'd get expelled. And of course, we didn't have the tuition fees. So I didn't want to be in a situation where we borrowed money and I don't graduate, then the family is screwed for life. And I was filled with fears, doubt, and insecurities. I knew I was never academically gifted. I just knew that in my heart of hearts, again, for my first 18 years, I was, again, bottom one third of the class. I was not some genius. And here I'm like, man, I'm going to go to Harvard. Mom, how are we going to pay for it? She said, you'll figure it out. One day I did have a heart to heart after her. You know, I said, Mom, what if I don't graduate? I'm not smart enough. And here's what I learned about life. On one hand, we all have passion, dreams, and positive things about our lives. And every single human being on the planet, it doesn't matter who you are, you have fears, doubts, and insecurities. It may be your looks. It may be your work ethic. It may be your intelligence. It may be anything, literally. And it's important to recognize that we all have it. And I still have fears, doubts, and insecurities, different ones than when I was younger. But what do we choose to listen to? A voice that says you're not good enough or a voice says, go jump because you might fly. I seriously, seriously was contemplating not going to Harvard because I was afraid we didn't have the money. I wasn't smart enough. I was going to get kicked out. And that would have set the family back even worse than where we were. And it was a genuine belief. And I had to overcome this and go. And in the first week when I got to Harvard, I have a suitcase with all my life's belongings. I feel completely out of place because everyone there is 
wealthy or comes from a wealthy family or, you know, stereotypical. I mean, sure, there are many other self-made people, but I definitely was one of the poorest, if not the poorest kid there. And, you know, I wore the same pair of jeans four times a week. I had several t-shirts, maybe a couple pairs of jeans at the time. And I was embarrassed about my family background. I didn't want to discuss it with people. And I walked around. Harvard is a beautiful campus. And I walked around feeling like I don't belong here. And the first orientation thing we have is, you know, there's these clearly privileged background families. Their kids, you know, drove up in nice cars and nice clothes and all. And I'm like, man, I'm in the wrong school. I'm in the wrong place. And I felt that way my entire time at Harvard. My entire time. The entire time. Yeah, entire time. I mean, I found my friendship circle who were other people who felt like there were odd people out there. They were also in struggling backgrounds, right? In one way or another. So that was my experience. But over time... I realized my fears, doubts, and insecurities were false. And so I did gain confidence. You know, after our first midterms, when I aced everything, then I'm like, wow, maybe I am reasonably smart. If I really put myself, if I really work hard at it, you know? And I worked really hard that first term. I mean, I worked really hard because I was no money, scared of getting expelled, kicked out for bad grades. Talking to my mom, I knew, and you know, I had to bring her eventually to my dorm room once I got settled. Like I was in an impossible situation that if I failed, that'll be it. And that taught me also another thing that I always use it to remind myself is when you fight for something bigger than yourself, it is impossible to quit. When you fight only for yourself, it is very possible to quit. So I always give an example. If you're fighting because, you know, you want to buy yourself a new iPhone or a new car or you want that promotion or whatever it is or a new house, it's you. So you can always change if you're failing your goals. But when you're fighting for something much bigger than yourself, for other people, suddenly it, it, you cannot, you cannot you can't just quit. quit. You can't quit. <laughs> you, you have to keep persevere. You have to find a way. And so that's what that whole experience, so many invaluable, precious lessons I learned from that experience, but that's one of them. Well, let's talk about passion in the ring. Can you tell me three lessons from the ring that translate and serve in daily life? It is darkest truly at midnight, but the sun always rises again. In the ring, I have seen and even experienced losses that are devastating. You go back to the locker room, backstage and you cry your heart out for the next few days because you poured your whole life into everything, into that moment, and you lose, you come up short. But the journey of chasing your greatness, of doing something that ignites your soul, always brings you back to this place of the sun rises again. And that's a great analogy for life because all of us, okay, we will all catch bad breaks that are out of our control. And it's how we handle the worst moments of our lives that dictates the trajectory of our lives. And I truly believe this. Some people, bad things happen and they focus only on the negative and they break. And some people experience bad things and they try to take the lessons and better themselves. And it's very, very important to recognize that life is not a linear trajectory of things getting better and better and better. It is messy and it goes up, it goes down, it goes sideways, it, unexpected things happen. And it's how you react to these things. So that's lesson number one, I would say. And lesson number two is, you know, we have a saying, you know, get knocked down seven times, but get back up eight times. Perseverance and grit and resilience in chasing your dreams. I think the universe or God has a funny way of testing how badly do you want your dreams? You know, I don't think there's any dream that has come true anywhere on the planet, unless you're a lottery winner, where you haven't had to persevere, cry, you know, beat yourself up, break through limits you never knew you could break through to achieve what you achieve. And, and, and you can ask that of any successful person in any industry, and they will tell you the many dark days, the many days filled with fears, doubts, and insecurities, the many days and they were they lost, but somehow they held on to just on the hair of their head, a thin, just a slight level of grit and resilience, the last morsel they had. And they fought and suddenly it was the breakthrough moment, right? So that's something, again, we learn in the ring all the time uh, in fights. It's that grit and perseverance. It's not about getting knocked down. Everyone gets knocked down. It's coming back, being better than you were before. And the third, I would say, is when I look at our heroes competing, it's the most beautiful analogy for life and how to live life. In that, again, when you look at a world champion's journey, Life at the end of the day is a fight. 
and I know it's weird to say that, but it really is a fight. It's a fight for our dreams. It's a fight for our loved ones. It's a fight for who we are. It's a fight for our children. It's a fight. It's a fight every single day. And having that warrior spirit in you, knowing that you will fight and be unbreakable for your dreams, for your loved ones, no matter what happens, the fight is still there. Now, whether you win or lose is sometimes out of your control, but the fight to be the greatest version of yourself, the fight to do right by your loved ones. Life is a fight. And that is what I see every time. It's really hard for me when I, whenever I watch our athletes compete because I know that there can only be one world champion, one winner. But I know the journey for both of them to get to that point. It's been a lifetime of passion and purpose and disappointment and heartbreak to get to that moment. It's heartbreaking and heart-wrenching to watch one of them lose. But at the same time, I know it's just part of the story, part of their story, part of their journey. So I think those are the three things I would say that I've learned both as a lifelong martial artist who has competed, but also who is now a CEO who, watching our heroes compete every week. Well, did you feel the same way? Because you had 16 contestants on The Apprentice, and I think it was the toughest apprentice in history. So did you <laughs> yes. feel the same way that like with each one who dropped yes. out so, that it was? Yes, definitely. So, it was, you know, again, we had several thousand folks apply and my team and, and uh, our production team went through tons of candidates and we chose handpicked these 16 because you could tell they were not cookie cutter. They'd lived life on their terms, that they were somehow original souls, and yet they'd never necessarily gotten their big break in life. And in many ways, The Apprentice, the edition we did, was unlike anything other because we actually created physical challenges in addition to the business challenges. Mm -hmm. And the physical challenges were to test their fears, doubt, and insecurity, were to test their breaking points, were to push them past their limits. And you saw, you know, people break and cry because of the physical. And it was because even though they wanted their dream, it was clear that they weren't unbreakable for their dream. And it came out. The business challenge, you could see how someone was smart. And so for me, in constructing The Apprentice in this manner was to be true to the essence of one. Whoever won the show, we wanted to be a hero or heroine to the world because of the incredible path or journey of adversity they had to go through in order to win. But also I wanted viewers to be surprised and delighted and entertained with the content and yet take away deep, meaningful lessons about life. Were there any of the contestants who weren't physically fit when they began and you had to train them or they were all incredibly fit? No, they were warned. So they prepared on their own prior to joining the show, you know, that this would be the toughest apprentice physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. So, well, I think for all the listeners, I exercise almost every day. I know that you yes, are yes. very, very fit. And I do think that also helps in life. I mean, it helps with the mental process when you are physically on you're also, it helps with your mental charge. For sure. I mean, uh, you know, just think about the times in your life where, you know, you went on a, on a bad streak of eating unhealthy or not work out and just think about your mood and just think about how you feel about yourself and your energy levels, right? So I definitely, you know, and I've gone through my own cycle of, and I still do struggle, right? With, I love good food and unfortunately good food is often unhealthy. And, you know, I go through cycles and there's definitely a huge correlation between when I'm eating healthy and living healthily and I see it in my performance in the gym and in martial arts training and I see it in my performance as a leader. Pass the Power will be right back after the break. For those people out there who are thinking of leaving one career path for another, what kind of challenges did you face when you left finance and then decided to pursue the martial arts as a business? I will tell you that it took a lot of courage, a lot of not listening to my fears, doubts, and insecurities, of not listening to society, not listening to my friends and family, not listening to my mother about what was best for me. But by then you'd made enough money that she had to think in her mind that you were a success, right? Her view of me was, Chatri, you're wealthy now, but you're arrogant. You've forgotten what it's like to be poor. And that's why you think you can go from being a hitchman to whatever you want to do, right? Her view of the world was like, you're already on the path. You already made it. And you're just going to make more if you stay on this path. It's a sure path. Sure bet. Exactly. And 
again, like I did go through a lot. It wasn't like I had lunch at the sushi bar and Eureka had this moment of inspiration and, and the next day I quit. No, I did have the light bulb moment that I could not see myself as a hedge fund manager or as a human being chasing material things until I was 80 years old. I just could not see it. When I was a young boy, like five years old, this is one of the words I remember from my mother. Chatra, you're going to grow up to help the world. And she used to say this all the time. My entire childhood, even when I was screwing up, I remember her words, you're going to grow up to help the world. You're going to grow up to help people. And when I was in that sushi bar in cold sweat, realizing my life was built around a definition of success that society had painted and not my true version of what I thought what success was. Those words echoed. I'm like, am I helping people in my job right now? I'm like, I'm not helping people. I'm making a lot of money for myself, making a lot of money for people, but I'm not necessarily helping people. And it took many sleepless nights after that before I realized, you know what, I have to do something that truly ignites my soul. And again, I'm not passing judgment on people who love material things or people who are working on Wall Street or no, I'm not passing judgment because we all have different paths, but just make sure that that path is authentic to you, to who you are, to what you believe. Something that, you know, you, you wake up in the morning, you, you're excited to jump out of bed and you can't go to sleep early because you don't want to go to bed because your life is so, so rich and fulfilling to you, not to anybody else, to you. And so, you know, my mom was vehement. She did not want me to start one. She did not want me to be living my life as a martial artist. She said, Chatri, yes, you love martial arts, but that doesn't mean you have to live your life of martial arts. You can train, which I was always training anyways. But I said, mom, the happiest moments, the happiest moments of my day were not when I was a hedge fund, the happiest moments when I was in, you know, on the mats training. And I wanted to fill my life 24 seven full of that happiness and that fulfillment and that love. And that was what I was trying to express to her. But she was like, Chatri, you're arrogant, you're stupid, this, that, the other, you're crazy. All my friends, only one friend was like, you know, Chatri, you're actually born for that. You should do it. And your mom now? So my mom is 74 years old and the first event she ever attended was a few years ago. She watched Angela Lee defend her title and, you know, she was in the front row VIP section. She's again, she's a very conservative Japanese lady, but in that match, she was on her seats, standing up, screaming at the top of her <laughs> lungs. It. And she said, Chatri, I finally understand why this means so much to you. But more importantly, as a mom, I'm happy to see that you are truly happy. And that meant a lot to me because I was like, you know, if a 74-year-old lady, conservative lady, in one night can be turned into, from a highly skeptical skeptic into mm -hmm. a fan, a real fan, that said, wow, there is hope for one. <laughs> That's how I thought. But that must have been a really special moment for you to know that your mother thought that you were a success. Yeah, and that's what I said. Like, you see, on one hand, I say, don't listen to people. But on the other hand, I do care about the opinions of people. Like, so it's kind of this thing where, you see, but which voice is louder, okay? And to live for me a truly fulfilled life, you have to listen to your purpose, listen to your passion. And let's take two extremes. One is a person who only listens to society, only listens to his or her parents or his or her friends, and that's the trajectory they take. Versus a person who's completely intrinsic and only listening to what their passion, their purpose is. I'll tell you the level of fulfillment and happiness internally, and when they're both eight years old, when they look back at their journey, I genuinely believe one will look back and see a lot of emptiness. A lot of quote unquote achievement, but a lot of emptiness. The other person, We'll look back, may or may not see a lot of achievement, but we'll definitely see a lot of fulfillment. And at the end of the day, look, we all leave this earth. Why not have more happy days, more rich, inspired days than empty days, you know? And emptiness is something you know, but no one else knows. So I was wearing a suit on Wall Street. I was making millions. I was empty. I was not living in my definition of success. I was living society's definition of success. Today, I honestly tell you, like, I don't think about other people's and how what they think of me as a first priority. I just am overflowing with passion and purpose. Now, it doesn't mean, again, I don't listen what my mom, of course, I'm very happy that my mom is happy for me or that she understands. Of course, that makes me feel very good. But there's a duality to it. It's knowing the balance, knowing to say, okay, am I living my most authentic self? Am I living the greatest version of my life that I could live? Am I living my truth? And then having what people think about you is secondary. Then, okay, you know, but if you're focused on the wrong things, and it's very easy, you know, I were talking before, 
we started was is basically how there's so much noise all for all of us. Doesn't matter how old you are. You should do this. You could be that. You could do this. You should do that. You know, every day it's subtle. Sometimes it's direct. Sometimes indirect. Sometimes it's just from a TV show you watch and you think that's how your life should be. Or you saw someone's Instagram account and you feel depressed about your life. There's so much noise and you have to look internally. And that's why I always say to young kids for me, millennials and Gen Z and next generation, if you're at this place where you're feeling empty or confused or don't know what you want out of life, don't ask your friends, don't ask your parents. Go out to a park, a beach, sit by yourself, take a piece of paper, write down all the things that you love that genuinely ignite your soul, write on one side of the paper, on the other side of the paper, write down the things that you're really good at. And the marriage of something that you truly love with something that you're truly gifted at or that you're good at, you will find your path. But if you don't take that time and just sit there and just say, I'm miserable, I'm empty, I'm miserable, and then talk to your parents and your parents are like, oh, that's a good company, you should stay at the, stay the course, but you really don't believe in this, that, this, that, or the other company, you're just doing it because it's your resume, it's your CV, you will have a moment like I had where you realize you climbed to the top of the wrong mountain. I don't regret my life. I don't regret anything about it because I think I had to go through that journey to find myself today where I am today. And it's never complete, as you know, Paige. It's, it's ever evolving. Learning and growing is, is this ever evolving thing. And we all change as human beings. I love that answer and the, the tangible task of you know the things you're passionate about, the things you're good at, and then adding them up to figure out the direction. I really like that takeaway. Before we wrap, I'd love to ask you your thoughts on philanthropy. This is a huge part of my life. It has always been a huge part of my life. You know, charity, working, volunteering, donating money and time. And it all began because of my beautiful mother when I was 13 years old. And at that time at 13, we were affluent and I didn't know at the time I was living a very privileged life. And my mother said, I want us to go volunteer or I want you rather, me, to go volunteer at Klong Toy Slums in Thailand, which is the 100,000 people were stricken slums. And I was very reluctant. I didn't want to, you know, it took away from my playtime in summer and all this stuff. And, but my mom forced me and I'm glad she did because I still remember the very first day walking into Klung Toy Slums, how decrepit everything was, the stench of urine, trash, feces, and walking deeper and deeper into Klung Toy Slums where suddenly I saw kids high on paint thinner, no clothes. I saw little tin shacks that were no bigger than my bathroom where a family of nine would have to live. And, uh, you know, I volunteered and that really changed my perspective and helped me understand life in a different way. And since that day, I've always been part of some organization or support organization. Today, my companies are involved on a global scale as big as Global Citizen, which is an organization committed to alleviating poverty gender inequality, education inequality, health inequality. And even at the local level here in Singapore, uh, we support Boys Town Home, which is Singapore's home for orphans, abandoned kids, troubled kids, Children's Cancer Foundation, you know, kids with cancer, Children's Society of Singapore, underprivileged kids, and the list goes on. And, you know, I don't just donate my money, I donate time. So I'll give you example, you know, pre-pandemic, every quarter with Boys Town Home, we would sponsor with all of our world champions. We'd go there for uh, afternoon and evening of soccer, basketball and a barbecue and then uh, also once a quarter i would you know rent out a whole movie theater and, and invite a thousand kids to go watch a movie and you think what's the big deal about that well for many people in society going to a movie theater eating popcorn and enjoying a, you know the grand opening of avengers that's actually a once a year or once a multi-year experience it's not a oh it's a weekend for me it's a it's a weekend or a day whatever it is but, but that's what i mean about page I'm, I'm just truly grateful for all the struggles in my life, the adversity I face, the poverty I face, because I really believe that it has made me a more empathetic, compassionate person and able to use my blessings in life in a way that is helpful. And I always say to my friends and to everyone at one as well, that you know I don't believe that we were put on this earth just to have an easy, comfortable life, to buy material things, to have a car, a nice watch. I, I really believe that all of us were put on this earth to find our path, to find our greatness, to find our authenticity so that we can give back more than we receive to the world, so that we can make it a better place than how we found it. And I, I believe that with my heart and soul that I want in my small way to make this world a better place. 
And what about for those young people listening who think, well, Chatri's rich, so he can give. I don't have money and I don't have time. So even when I was struggling, I would go volunteer. And you know what's amazing? In many ways, volunteering is selfish. And what I mean by that is when I was in New York City as a hedge fund manager, I used to volunteer for Project Sunshine, which is a organization that focused on kids with HIV and, and cancer. And I'd go volunteer at the hospitals, you know, in the children's uh, wards. And on one hand, I knew that I was entertaining the kids. I was spending a lot of time. But on the other hand, you know, the kids were also teaching me so much about life, facing adversity. You know, children are just beautiful in that regard, right? Their souls are untouched. And to see them go through that kind of adversity, and many of the kids didn't make it, they gave me a deep sense of meaning, but also taught me many lessons about life. But also giving your time to somebody is probably the most precious thing you can do because time is finite. And when you give of your time, when you give of yourself, you don't think you're going to get back, but you actually do. And it's much more than money. It's much more than material things. It's lessons that you can carry with you for your life. So I would say like, it's trite, but giving to your loved ones, giving to your friends, giving to strangers, giving to the world is truly the path of happiness and fulfillment. Okay. Fill in the blank. Every successful entrepreneur has failed and failed and failed and failed. <laughs> Is there a question you wish I'd asked? We didn't talk much about my martial arts stuff, but you know, well, you're not to, a martial I, artist. So. I wanted to ask you why Asia, because I know that you spent so much time yeah. in the US and maybe maybe it's an obvious answer is that there was no one doing it here. Right, so, right, right. Well, when I migrated to the US, I thought I would never return back to Asia. I never thought I'd return back to Thailand because my family left in embarrassment, shame and poverty. and. In Asia, as you know, Paige, you've lived here a long time, face matters a lot. Social status matters a lot. And I just thought, you know, I never want to go back to a place where, you know, my family was, quote unquote, well-to-do and then lost everything. And now it, it was a pariah, right? You know, your friendship circle goes to zero. It literally goes to zero when you lose everything. And you quickly learn how money was a uh, creative facade for your life. Nothing was really real. So I was grateful for that too, actually, is to find out what was real, what was not real in my life. And also my parents, looking at my parents at their life. Right? I mean, for the longest time, I thought they had the most beautiful marriage, the truest of love. It took me a long time to overcome that too. It took me a long time to digest that too. Because again, in the earlier years of my childhood, I thought our family life was the best, full of love and affection. And, and the minute my father lost everything, my parents split. And I guess that's why naively I thought money was the answer to everything. And now I obviously know it's not. But I often wonder, I, you know, I often wonder why my father abandoned the family. And I did have a long talk with him. I didn't see him for many, many years because, uh, you know, he disappeared. But then um, several years ago, I tracked him down through relatives in Thailand and I met with him to forgive him, but also to find out the truth and to find peace instead of holding on to this anger that I had for so long. And when I met him, I was shocked. He was frail, old, skinny. He was nothing that what I remembered. And he left the family because he was... You know, if you can't provide food for your wife and your kids and you come home every day, you're reminded of that. You feel inadequate. You feel defeated and devastated. That's why he left. I thought he left because he just didn't care about us. But in reality, it's oftentimes people do bad things because it's a reflection of what they're feeling inside of themselves. Like I always say like you see a lot of hatred online. The hate is not really the hate towards you. It's a self-hatred or something within themselves that they're expressing that they wish they could have this, that, the other, or, or, and expressing their hatred. That's why the internet is a sad place. You know, there's a lot of hatred and, and anger, but it's also a reflection of life that, and it goes back to empathy. Like when people do bad things or say negative things, if you just step back and say, what is that person really going through that he or she can carry so much hate and anger towards a situation or people? Anyways, long story cut short, my father, we're able to have a dinner and I invited him to Singapore to come see my life. And I thought we had time to repair and mend the relationship. But a year later or so, he ended up having a stroke where he was completely paralyzed, completely. Like, so he, his whole body was paralyzed, except for his eyes, where he could wink and move his eyes. But his mind was completely conscious. And I didn't even know that that existed. Apparently, it's called locked-in syndromes. So the final years of his life was utter despair and suffering, bedridden, unable to move, but comprehending everything and only able to communicate with the blink of your eye. So my father and I didn't have time to ever fully reconcile. I was able to bring my newborn son to him and my father had tears. So there were some special moments. And of course, then he passed away. 
I guess being able to have that closure, though, is better than never having that, to have those tears from your son. Yeah, you know, I for mean, sure, for sure. At uh, least you have that. Yeah, I mean, to know that my father did meet my newborn son and that he, that my father did have love, you know, that he didn't express, you know, it's kind of crazy, but my father never gave me a hug my entire life that I can remember, maybe when I was a little baby. I bet you hug your son every day, right? <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> he never said, I love you. He never expressed, but yet at that moment when he, he had tears in his eyes, completely paralyzed, being introduced to my son who was just a few months old at the time, maybe six months, maybe, or maybe even a year old, I, I can't remember. But that, again, said a lot, right? It said a lot. Well, as we close, I'm going to ask a few quick questions. A trend you'd like to end? A trend that I like to end is showing fake lives on social media. I feel it's very detrimental to mental health, meaning that I don't know how many pages of Instagram pages, I'd probably say 99% of Instagram pages show the very, very best of their lives or and or a very, very fake life where people actually go rent a Lamborghini and say it's theirs, right? <laughs> so sad. But there's a lot of authenticity that is lacking in the world today. If I could, I would love to end this whole, look at how great my life is. You know, the reality is all of us, doesn't matter where you are in life, we all have good, bad, and ugly days. And uh, yeah, I think a lot of mental health issues, especially the millennials and Gen Z, stem from directly from social media because there's so much hate online, there's so much anger expressed. And at the same time, there's this fake facade that life is great and it's not true. Favorite comfort food? Thai street food. So whenever I go back to Thailand, you know, I have my favorite uh, haunts and it's all Thai street food from when I grew up. MBS, Gardens by the Bay, Jewel or Botanic Gardens? Botanic Gardens because I go there almost every day for walks. It still blows my mind. You know, I've been to Central Park, which is obviously one of the greatest parks in the world, but I think Botanic Gardens blows it away. Again, both parks are magnificent, but Botanic Gardens is, is incredible. I was just in New York and I would probably argue for Central Park, though I do <laughs> adore Botanic Gardens. If you could be a superhero, what power would you have? Wow, that's a tough one. If I could be a superhero, what power would I have? I guess I would love to be invisible so I could do a lot of things to bad, bad situations and fix them without it being uh, known, I guess. Mm -hmm. I think invisible, you could do a lot of good with it. I like that. And right a lot of wrongs. Favorite drink and with whom you'd share it? I actually stopped drinking alcohol completely. So- uh, It can be tea. Yeah, 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 exactly. So <laughs> so my favorite drink uh, is, actually probably the drink that I drink every day is ginger tea. My maids make a ginger tea from scratch and they boil the ginger. They, just boil, they boil the ginger, yeah. yeah. And, I do and, that, and, I love and it. It's sugar-free. Sometimes it's very spicy, but it's it's very soothing and it's phenomenal for your body. So I drink ginger tea every day. Gosh, I, do, I have that too. I love ginger tea. Your parting words to pass the power to our listeners? Have the courage and take the time to go out again at a park or a beach to listen to yourself and not listen to the voices of others, whether it's society, your parents, your friends, but listen to it because for so long, I didn't listen to it. I listened to the expectations of others of myself. I listened to a Harvard MBA supposed to go to Wall Street, you know, or I listened to my mom saying how proud she was of me because I was in a suit. Every day there's noise, but have the courage to listen to your truth, to your authenticity and live a life and have the courage to live a life that truly ignites your soul. And not, I don't mean just professionally, I mean personally as well. How many people in your life are truly people you want in your life versus that are just there? How many boyfriends and girlfriends, how many marriages are because of he or she had the right background or right education instead of the things that matter most, love and honesty and communication? I just find that, and I'm not saying that I'm not lost, you know, it depends on the day and you'll find me lost still, right? But I am definitely have more clarity about who I am, who I want to be versus let's say 15 years ago. And it's because I confronted my truths. I had the courage to live the life. And again, I'm the first to admit I've had a lot of good luck and blessings when I did decide to jump and chase my dreams and chase my passion and, and live a life of passion and purpose. But you probably will too. The universe conspires in really strange ways when you express yourself authentically and truthfully. You'll be surprised. And that's the one thing I was surprised. I had no idea that what would happen would happen. You know, one would become so big that we'd be top 10 in the world now as a global sports property in terms of viewership and engagement metrics. I never thought that we would be this big. 
But somehow, because I'm living with passion and purpose, it has become a magnet for others who believe in the same things. And actually, you know, for me to be on this podcast page, I think also is the universe at work, the law of attraction. There's something about you that I saw that I said, you know what, I do want to go spend a couple hours with Paige, despite my crazy schedule, you know. And there's something in you that saw my optimism or my dreamer in me that said, hey, you know, I think Chachri might have something interesting to say. Again, that's an example of how the universe conspires when you throw yourself out there in an authentic way, you know, because obviously, Paige, when you invited me, I did do homework on you and said, you know, what does she want out of this? What's she trying to express? What's her voice? And I felt it very congruent with mine. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that our schedules finally were able to mesh and get us here to get, you know, but I, again, I think it's the universe conspiring in mysterious ways for you and I to meet. Well, you certainly personify season two of the podcast where we've got purpose and passion and peace. And you have told our listeners to embrace failure, that passion breeds excellence and courage. And I guess we can't do it alone. And we must remember that what we do must ignite our souls. Yes. I love that. That is ultimately it because you can go through the motions. You can pretend. You can make millions. I made millions pretending. I made millions of dollars in a suit. I had material things. I had houses. I had cars. I had it. But that was society's definition. And no matter what happens, no matter what external rewards you get, you'll never be happy and truly, truly happy and content if you are listening to what society wants out of you. What do you want? How do you want to express this one precious life we have? How do you want to make an impact on your loved ones, on your community, on your friends, on the world with the time you have on this earth? Do something that truly makes you happy, that truly lights up your soul. And it doesn't mean that you're going to be happy every single day. It's not like I still have good, bad, and ugly days, but I'm on this path. I'm on this journey that I know is truly authentic to myself that is filled with passion and purpose. So the highs are incredibly high, the highs I've ever had in my entire life. Uh, and the lows are also the lowest I've ever had in my, you know, on this journey of one. Tremendous lows as well. Well, thank you, Chatri, for sharing. No, thank you so much, Paige, for having me. And, you know, I have to say this conversation was like talking to an old friend. It was very natural. And yeah, I really enjoyed it, Paige. Wonderful. Pass the power. Pass the power. Thank you for listening. Please write to me on Instagram with your top takeaway from today. Since I'm still new at this, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or click the follow button on Spotify. Share my podcast on your Instagram stories and please tag me at I am Paige Parker. Always know I'm eager to hear from you on guest ideas and questions for upcoming guests. If you're new to the show, be sure to listen to the previous episodes to hear from more thought leaders. Again, thank you for listening and come back next week for another episode of Pass the Power with me, Paige Parker. Together, we got this.